Well, good morning, New Branch. Uh, we're so excited to see you guys today. I see a bunch of uh, green sweatshirts that our, our students were wearing this week for uh, Unite Weekend, where we got to come together with, with Hebron and with New Branch and with Antioch. And uh, as they said, my name is Nathan Newfang. I'm one of the pastors at uh, Hebron Baptist Church, and it is such a joy to be here with you today. Um, I haven't met many of you. I, I know a few of you, but I have prayed often uh, for this faith family. Uh, we pray corporately for you guys often, even at our church, and we're so grateful to be a part of things like the Pillar Network, where we're able to see churches planted and revitalized uh, together. And so even with Antioch, we had Tyler, uh, who came over to our church, and uh, we presented him in front of our members and said, hey, if some of you live in the Houston area and you, know, you are looking for a church out closer to you, we would love for you to go there, and we continue to support them, and we continue to, to pray for them as well. And one of the uh, phrases that we often use at our church is kingdom over territory, kingdom over territory. We're part of God's kingdom here, and it's not about building a bigger territory for a specific church, uh, but we really want to be about the kingdom of God and see the kingdom continue to advance throughout this area. And so I'm so grateful to be at a church that models that in so many ways. Uh, Pastor Ken is a good friend of mine, and he's a wonderful brother. He graciously invited me uh, to come up to preach uh, to you guys this morning. Uh, I was laughing about this because uh, he called me on Thursday, or texted me, said, hey man, not feeling good, uh, you know, will you be able to preach for me on Sunday? He said, I've exhausted all the possible people to be able to preach. And, and so part of me started to wonder, where was I on that list? Like, did I crack the top five, top ten? You know, where was I? And then this morning I heard even more people that were asked, before, and they said no too. Um, so I don't know. So just put that in your expectations for whatever, uh, as you receive God's word this morning. Um, no, I'm, it's such a joy to be with uh, him on a regular basis. We meet together for breakfast and lunches, and uh, we pray together, and we pray for you guys, and he prays for our faith family and our staff, and, and so it's so grateful to be a part of that partnership in so many ways. Uh, if you have your Bibles, as we said uh, earlier, we're going to be in First Peter this morning, so we're going to deviate from Isaiah. I'm not picking up because I got this message on Thursday, and you would not want me to preach Isaiah chapter 1 or chapter 2. I don't know where you guys are at right now on uh, two days' notice, uh, but we're going to be in First Peter this morning. We're going to start in verse 22 and go through 2-3. First Peter. Now, I know some of you, um, I think there's a men's group that's walking through First Peter right now. And so whoever has to teach this text, I hope I do not step on all your thunder. There's a lot of wonderful truths in this text this morning. And so there will be plenty uh, for you uh, as you uh, continue to look at that. And if you're not involved in that men's group, you should probably be involved in that men's group. It's a great opportunity. Um, one of the things that we do at our church, and I don't know if you guys are... are used to doing this here. Uh, I'm going to ask us to stand, if you're able, and we're going to read First uh, Peter. I'm going to read First Peter 1, 22 through 2, 3. So if you'll stand as we read God's word this morning, if you're able. This is First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. This is Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he writes this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, I pray this morning that you will be kind to us as we study your word. Would you help enlighten our hearts to see the truths in this text? And Father, would you help it not just to be information for us, but to truly transform us so that we look more like your son. God, we are grateful for this time that we get to worship together, and we pray that you are glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. One of the things that we see in 1 Peter in particular is he, in chapter 1, we're going to walk through it in a little bit. He's laid out what the gospel is, but there's this new community that is being created. And so the wonderful thing about salvation is God saves individuals, but he just doesn't save individuals. He is saving a people for himself. And so we get the opportunity to celebrate that every single week when we gather together. It's a reminder that God saved me but God has saved us and is saving us. He's, he's going to keep us. He's going to hold on to us as we, we get to be together. So there's this new community. But what we see in this new community is it changes our affections and our actions. All right? This new community that God has created, he, he changes our affections. And so he changes the things that we love. But he also changes our actions. And so I started to think, well, what does this look like in our own lives? Well, when I went off to college, I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels. Um, my affections changed. Like, I'd grown up a Tar Heel fan. I'd always loved the Tar Heels. But all of a sudden, when maybe it was because of the money that I was paying to go to the school there, right? But, but my, my affections started to change. I loved them more. And I had friends that were there that grew up Duke fans. And if you're a Duke fan, you need a lot of prayers this morning, okay? We'll continue to do that. But, but I had friends that were Duke fans growing up. But then they went to school at Carolina and all of a sudden, their affections changed. They didn't root for the same team that they had rooted for previously because of the people they were around. They were a part of this new community. They didn't, we didn't hang out with the same people that we once did because we were a part of this new community. The people we loved, the people we did life with, it changed. But it not only changed our affections, it changed our actions. You see, on, on Saturdays, even though Carolina football is terrible, we would go to watch football games together. When there were basketball games on, we didn't have uh, study groups. We weren't trying to make sure we knew what was going on. You see, our actions had changed because of this new community. When you go off to college, all of a sudden, like, food just doesn't appear on your table anymore. It's weird, right? You have to learn to do that on your own. You have to go get food. You have to, you have to purchase food. You have to fix food, and then it shows up. Like, it doesn't just happen anymore like it once did when you were at your home. You see, your actions had to change because you were a part of this new community. What I want us to see from this text today is Peter lays out some very clear things that if you have been saved, if you are part of this new community, then your affections will change and your actions will change as well. And because of his word and his gospel, God is creating this new community and it is marked by these changed affections and actions. This is what this means. Students, adults, if you are a believer in Christ, you are not the same as you once were. You do not love the same things that you once loved. And your actions will not be the same as they once were. Because you are changed. Because you are different. And so one of the things we like to do at our faith family is we like to put the passage in a sentence. And so this is the passage in a sentence. So if you're, if you're writing down notes, this is kind of the, the main idea, the main takeaway. It's this. As a newly formed community, the gospel empowers us to love one another, to look like Jesus, 
and to long for spiritual growth. All right? As a newly formed community, the gospel empowers us and enables us to love one another well, to look like Jesus, and to long for his word. And so, or to long for spiritual growth. So you're going to see some very clear things in this text. And we're going to get to these major truths towards the end. But before we get there, we have to understand what Peter has always already done. So if you're part of the men's group and you're walking through 1 Peter and you've gone through the first chapter, I'm just going to remind you of the beautiful truths that are in this text. All right? In chapter 1, these are some of the things that are said that are true about you if you're a believer in Christ. He says in verse 1, you're elect exiles. That means that you are chosen. God chose you. He looked at you and said, I'm going to send my son for you. For you. He says that this salvation is by grace. It is not because of anything that you can earn. There is nothing you can do to earn this. No matter how hard you try or how, it doesn't matter because it is grace. It also says in verse 3 that God has mercy on us. This is not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve the grave. That's not what we get. We get God. We get life. Just as a reminder. Then he says that it's not just one person of the Trinity, but the whole Trinity is involved in your salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In verse 5, it says that God is guarding you. This means that you cannot lose your salvation. He is, he is looking over you. He is guarding you. He is making sure that you will finish. In verse 10, it says the prophets have proclaimed it. This means that God always had a plan to save. There was never a moment in which God was caught off guard by this or he did not have this plan in place. From the very get-go, it says that, that we were predestined before the foundations of the world. God had this plan in order to redeem himself a people. It says in verse 17 that he's your father. So he is our savior, but he's not just your savior, he's your father. He, is, he has redeemed you into a community, into a family. It says in verse 18 that you have been ransomed. He has ransomed you. He has bought you back with his blood. That while we were slaves in darkness, that God ransomed us. He paid the payment so that we could have life. And then in verse 21, it says this, death is not final because God raised Christ from the dead. And so if you're here today and, and we don't get this part of it, we can't understand all these things that First Peter's trying to tell us of saying this is the way that the new community should act. Because if we're not really understanding who God is and what he's done for us, It doesn't matter how hard we try to do these other truths, to to love one another, to look like Jesus, and to long for spiritual growth. We first and foremost have to understand who God is and what he has done for us. Peter is laying the groundwork here for us. And so there's these things in the Bible, often throughout the letters, it's the indicatives of the scripture and the imperatives. And so the indicatives are what is true about God, and the imperatives are this is what you need to do in light of those things. And so throughout most of the epistles, the letters in the New Testament... The writer will often say, this is who God is and what he's done. And so in light of those things, this is the ways that we should act. And what we see here is the indicative where I want to start is looking at understanding this. Now, for, for some of us, maybe you've been believers for a long time. And you look at this and you say, man, I believe that. But I think the hardest part is not just saying that one time, but it's really understanding the truths of the gospel and it lodging into our hearts for us to remember it. It's why often in the scriptures, the command is to remember Remember, remember, remember. 
We can be told those things, we can understand those things, but we have to be reminded of what God has done for us. And so what we get to, in the, but the imperatives of the text, before we get there, we need to see some of the indicatives. So verse 22 says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So, so he talks at the very beginning about having purify, uh, your souls being purified. And, and the way um, that we talk about there, uh, we think about purifying. I, I kept thinking about um, just water in general. So if I ask you to go drink out of Fort Yargo State Park Lake, how many of you are going to do that? Probably not many, right? Probably not many. But if you get a bottle of water, like I was brought this morning, I'm, I'm fine to drink that. I don't even think twice about it. Why? Because it's purified. In the same way, what we see in this text is that it is, is God who has purified us, having purified your souls by your obedience. Well, when he talks about obedience, and he says the words you and your there in particular, it's, it's Peter's way of saying y'all, okay? Y'all got to understand this. Like, that's what he's saying there when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience. He's, he's talking to the community here. So again, even as we understand salvation, we have to understand that it is, it is part of this community that we have been brought into, so it's not just for individuals, it's for, for us together. And, and I love this because salvation then is not just for you. Like, it's a stewardship. So, so be, when you are saved, you have the opportunity to now to go out and to proclaim those things to others. Like, God saves us for his glory, not for, even for our sake. And I love that because he loved us so much that he decided to do this for us. And then he calls us to be on mission with him. And the way that the, the term obedience is used often throughout Peter and the other epistle writers, he's talking here about obedience to the truth. It's a way to understand that if the gospel has changed you, then you will obey. It's not obeying in hopes that you will be saved. It's obedience out of the fact that you were saved. It's a way that they talk about conversion is what we see here. And I love this because obedience to God's word is not just legalism. Okay, John 14, 15 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what, what he's saying there is like, it's not that just obedience that you're just, you're hoping to do it. It's drudgery. It should be joy. But not only is it joy for us, the, the beautiful part of this is it's not just doing it, hoping that you're earning something. It's if we love Christ, we will obey him. And so we see that in verse 22. Then we go on to 23. It says, since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So, so verse 23, Peter goes on to say, in case it was unclear, like, Jesus has begotten you. He's chosen you. You've been born again through him, through a saving work on the cross. And he says we're born again because of this imperishable seed. It's not something that's going to fade away. Peter's already explained what this means earlier in chapter 1, verse 18, but he said that God loves us, he redeems us, and it's something imperishable, not perishable. I, I thought about this recently. Um, how many of you love to go to the beach? A few of you? Okay. I love going to the beach. It's one of my favorite things every year. We go with our family to the beach. I've got two boys. Uh, they're 8 and 11, and they're a trip, okay? And then uh, my wife, Marianne, and I, we've been married for uh, 14, almost 15 years, and we often go to the beach. It's one of the things that we love to do. And so we go to the beach together, and I'll never forget, I was building sandcastles with my son, Evan. He's eight years old. And we built this big sandcastle. I mean, we spent like 
way too much time on it, right? Like hours, okay? We spent hours of like trying to build this sandcastle. And, and he even got this like little crab shell and he put it at the top and he was super proud of himself, okay? And we walked away and he said, Dad, he said, do you think the sandcastle will be there tomorrow? And I was like, no, buddy. <laughs> I love you and Jesus, but I don't think that that sandcastle is gonna be here tomorrow, man. I mean, he's like, can we put up stakes or something to ward people off? I was like, I don't think that's gonna make a difference, bud. I was like, somebody's going to come knock it down or the tide's going to come in and knock it over. You see, in his mind, he had created something and he wanted it to be imperishable. He wanted it to stay. But it was perishable. Something was going to change. Something was going to happen in that way. In the, in the same way, though, what we see from this text is our salvation isn't like that. It's not like we have to put up those stakes in order to guard it. God does that for us. It's not that we hope in some ways that the tide's not going to come in because God is the one who, who shows us and, and, and who tells how far the tide can come in. You see that God in his salvation is not perishable. It's not going away. It's imperishable. And he says that the beautiful part of this is that it's the, the imperishable seed. He's talking about Christ there through the living and abiding word of God. And he says, this is the way that we learn about these things. This is the way we learn about salvation. And what, what God has done for us is, is through his word. And then Peter takes the time and he starts giving quotations from the Old Testament about God's word. And now when the New Testament writers, when they often quote the Old Testament, they're expecting that, in, that we as the readers understand the context of the surrounding passages. Right? So when the New Testament writers, when they're writing to, to people and they're, they're, they're saying, hey, this is a truth from the Old Testament. What their expectation is, is that you and I understand all the things that are surrounding that Quote, because that's what they would have understood. So in verse 24, he says there, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so Peter takes this quote from Isaiah chapter 40, and you'll get there probably next year, okay? Isaiah chapter 40 is the turning point in the book of Isaiah, so Isaiah 39, 5 through 8 says this. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of the host. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. And so you see the picture here. The Lord has said, Hezekiah, be prepared because exile is coming. And Hezekiah ends and he says, there will be peace and security in those days because that's what he thought. But Isaiah chapter 40 is written there to comfort Israel because God will restore Everything from their exile to Babylon. The, the good news for Israel in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 is that God fulfills his promises. And though the nations of the world may seem strong and they, you cannot resist them, the word of the Lord can deliver them from exile. That's what he's trying to say there in Isaiah chapter 40. And then the, I mean, what he's saying is, is these nations are like grass and the flowers are grass and they'll perish when the wind of the Lord blows on them. And I love what one writer said. He said this, perhaps Peter thought of the persecutors of his day, as he's writing here in 1 Peter, who seemed invincible, but whose glory was short-lived. Grass and flowers are beautiful in the springtime, 
And hopefully we'll get there soon. But when fall arrives, one would not know that it thrived. When you drive through your neighborhoods right now, you just don't see green grass. It's dormant. But what we see here is in the same way, Peter's trying to encourage the believers to say, hey, those that seem the strongest, those when you look at it and say, how is this all going to work out? We can trust that the word of our God is the one that will stand forever, not the persecution that you're experiencing right here and right now. Peter is telling the Christians that are in exile, God has made a way. He's made his promises, and he will deliver on those things. And the reason why we have to start here before we get to uh, the imperatives of this text is we have to understand that this is the context that he's writing to. He's saying this is good news. And so as he has these things later to say these are ways and we should act, we have to understand first and foremost who God is and what he's done. So in light of all that, the first thing that the gospel calls us to do in this text is to love one another. So if you're taking notes, point one, long introduction, I know, love one another, love one another. 22 through 25 says this again, have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now here's the problem. We say we love a lot of things, don't we? We love cheeseburgers. I love cheeseburgers, okay? We love pizza. We love our favorite college team. We love our favorite NFL team. We love snow, and we hope that if it's going to be cold, it might as well snow outside, right? Amen? Amen? All right, we love sleep, some of you. Maybe not the people in green right now, okay? They're, they're okay, they're okay. But everybody else, we may love sleep. But God tells us over and over again in his scripture that we love God and we should love one another. In fact, Jesus said this in John 13, 34, 35, a new commandment that I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you and you also will love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Peter remembers that. He's, he's walked with Jesus. He's heard him teach on these things. And he gets to the point to say, hey, we need to pick this up again. And he does. He picks it up in chapter four as well. Because what he's trying to say here is that this new community that's been bought by the blood of Christ is supposed to love one another in a way that looks radically different than the rest of the world. And you know this. I know this. Uh, at the church that we attend, I lead a connect group on Tuesday nights. And my connect group is, any, we have people in our 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, 50s. I don't think anybody's in their 60s yet. We have kiddos that in all different age ranges, some that don't have kids yet. We have single guys that come to our group on a regular basis and single females that come to our group on a regular basis. We're just a, a mishmash of people. And, and as we talk and we look around, there's a lot of people that don't look like me, don't act like me, don't have the same preferences as me. But we meet every Tuesday night, we share a meal together, and then we open God's word and we study it together. What binds us together is not our affinities. What binds us together is not our shared experiences. What binds us together is Jesus. And it looks radically different. You could come in and say, these people don't look like they should be with each other. But because of the gospel and because of what Jesus has done for us, we worship him together. We get a chance to to celebrate our king together. And so even in your own lives, as you walk with people, how you love one another here, part of this faith family, should look radically different than the rest of the world. Because biblical community is supposed to be that way. And, and the thing that holds us together is not we're New Branch, it's we're Jesus followers. The things that hold us together is not we're a part of this community group, but we're Jesus followers. And so we see that and Peter is trying to point us to this thing. You can find community in a lot of different places. You can. 
We can find community around um, baseball teams, gyms, book clubs, CrossFit. Um, and a church is just a, another uh, social circle that you want to get to hang out with people. This is a terrible hobby. It is. But if Jesus has changed your life, and we can sit around God's word, and we can laugh together, and we can cry together, and we can celebrate the goodness of our king together. And as we read the truths in this text, we can encourage one another to be able to pursue those things as well. And then it's worth it. And that's really what biblical community is in so many ways. So these, these good things that are provided to us because of what Christ has done, now we get a chance to invite other people into those things. And he says in there, he says, love from a pure heart. And what he's trying to get across is we need to love without an impure motive. I don't know about you, but there are some people that I feel like they want to be around me or get to know me because they want something from me. You ever have somebody come to your door and want to sell you something? They may ask about your kiddos or ask, hey, you know, how long you lived in this house? They really don't care, right? They want to sell you something. They want to get you somewhere. They want to make sure that you open up your pocketbook and you do something for them. Biblical community is not supposed to be that way. We don't fellowship with one another or be around one another in hopes that you can, only if you can provide me something. That's using people. The Bible calls us to love one another without impure motives. So I love you and care for you and want to get to know you, not because you give me something, but because genuinely I understand what Christ has done for me and I want to love you out of a pure heart. We love you out of a pure heart. And sometimes loving things means confronting sin with one another. So as we're called to love one another, one of the things that that Peter has in mind even is that we call one another out. And so even this morning as we had a chance to reflect before we took the Lord's Supper, we got a chance to reflect on is there anything, do I have sin in my own heart? Are there people that I have have sinned against that I need to apologize for? All these things we had a chance to reflect on this morning. And as, as we are in biblical community with one another, we should push each other towards those things as well. And so we don't just come here and say, hey, how's it going? How's your week? How was work? How's the weather? Okay, it's great. And then move on. We get to know each other in such a way that we could ask, hey, man, how's your life? Where are some areas that you're struggling? How can I come alongside and pray for you? How can I really lift you up and and encourage you in the gospel when when you're feeling downtrodden to understand like Jesus died for you? Like he took your place that you deserve. Or, or if, if you're feeling prideful, it's a way of saying, God, don't you understand who Jesus is and what he's done? This isn't, this isn't something we can just come in flippantly. We, this is a holy God. We need those reminders from one another, and that is part of loving one another. We live in a world where, unfortunately, if you don't support me exactly like I am, exactly like I should be, then it's unloving. But that's not true. If my kid runs out in the street and there's a car coming, I'm going to do everything I can to save him. Brothers and sisters, biblical community should include us loving one another enough to be able to encourage one another, but also rebuke one another when things are out of sorts. God has called us to do that. And again, loving one another doesn't happen outside of the context of our faith families. Like loving one another well is is gathering together, is being with each other, of coming here and singing one another and hearing, hearing other people sing truths of the gospel as we get to worship with one another, to pray with one another. All these things are, are true because of what God has done for us. We should love one another. So the question that we have to ask is, are we doing that? 
Are we doing that well in our groups? Are we doing that well with other saints in our faith family? Are we being unloving towards one another? Do your words reflect that you love others in this room or those that are outside this room? Do your actions reflect that you love people in this room or outside this room? Have you been loving people well or are you using them for your own gain? We have to love one another. This text tells us and the Bible is very clear over and over again, love one another. And so in light of the gospel, we should love one another. But we're also seeing from this text that in light of the gospel and God's word, we should not just love one another, we should look like Jesus. Look at, look at chapter two, verse one. And so after all those things that he lays out, he gets there in chapter two and he says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Uh, I love this text here. It reminds me um, that the, the reminder that we're supposed to look like Jesus, that as he's transforming us, that we actually start to look like him. Now, if those of you in here, you do not know my wife, most likely. My wife's name is Mary Ann. My wife has the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen in my entire life, okay? And I'll fight you if you say otherwise, all right? So that's how serious that we are about this. And I'll never forget, because the first time I saw her, we were on a mission trip in Africa, um, we had, there's a bunch of churches that came together and she was with one church and I was with another church and it, we'd had a 19 hour flight on the way over there. And then this like eight hour bus ride to this other place. So we were, we were tired. We were, we were hot. We were, you know, we didn't know what was going on. We were just trying to make it. Okay. And by the t- we were on the back of this like overland truck and we were getting a meal together and I turned around and I saw my wife's eyes and I just, I mean, we didn't know each other at the time. We were just, we weren't even friends yet. I was like, you have really pre- beautiful eyes. Like that was what I said. Now, it's a great pickup line, guys, okay? All right? So, it was, and it worked out really well for me, okay? But here's the thing. Like, my wife has beautiful eyes, but they're very distinct. And the crazy part is, is where she's from, if people meet her, they know who her family is because of the way that her eyes look. You see, they can look at her eyes and say, oh, you're a Palmer. They know. That's her maiden name. They're like, oh, you're a Palmer. Because my brother-in-law has the same, has a very similar set of eyes. My father-in-law has the same set of eyes. And so they know what they look like by the look in their eyes. As I read this text, I wonder if people look at us and they say, oh, they're a Jesus follower. My wife's eyes are distinct and they know who her family is. Do people that look at your life, do they know who your family is? Do they know who your father is? We see in this text that loving one another well is being transformed to actually look like Jesus. So Jesus changes our affections, but he also changes our actions. And so he gets here in chapter 2 and he says, so we're supposed to put away all these things, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And Peter is trying to get across the point that once you believe in Christ, you are part of this new community and you start to love one another that helps us accomplish these things. And when you start to do that, you start to look more like Jesus. And so he starts there and he says, put these things away. Put, put, put away all of these things. Now, I don't know about you, but there's two types of people in the world. There's the people that come home from vacation that live out of their suitcases for a couple weeks and the people that put things away right away. You know which one you are in the marriage, okay? If you have any questions, you should ask your spouse. They'll let you know too, okay? There's two types of people. But the point here is that when you get home, you start to put things away right away. So after you're a believer in Christ, We don't stop and say, well, we may or may not put these things away. No, no, no. Once we become believers, all of a sudden, things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, we have to be a part of putting them away, putting those things away. My guess is nobody looks at this list right here and says, man, I've nailed it, right? 
Nobody looks at this list and says that. And, and you know why I know that? Because there's that pesky word in there three times all. It doesn't say some malice. I can do that. Some deceit. I can do that. Some slander. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's times every once in a while, but, like, but it doesn't say some. Over and over again, Peter goes ahead and says, we need to cast off these things because these things will kill our ability to love one another well. One author says it this way, what needs to be cast off is not the grosser vices of paganism, but community-destroying vices that are often tolerated by the modern church. When a community is under pressure, there is a tendency to begin bickering and division, which only makes the community that much more vulnerable to outside pressures. The writer says he gets to the point where he starts to talk about these things because he wants us to understand that these are the things that don't help us love one another well. It doesn't help us. And so he says in there, all, all deceit, all malice, all slander. There's no exceptions. And so if you're like me and you read these things and you say, man, there are things in my life that are still true of this list, then we're not fully looking like Jesus. But the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the church is that he is continuing to sanctify us, to make us look more like Jesus. So hopefully by the end of this year, we look more like Jesus than we did last year. And so we see these things here. So let's talk about some of these words here. The one that he comes up with is malice is where he starts. This is ill will towards one another. It destroys the harmony uh, of the community of believers. So malice is kind of a general term that Peter uses for all evil. And so if there's ever done anything evil, it's all malice. And then he goes on to deceit. Deceit refers to deliberately being dishonest, to speaking or acting with ulterior motives. So anything than speaking less than the full and honest truth, there's the tendency for us to have some heart of deceit for those things. Um, and so then he goes on, and this includes things like flattery, right? Just of talking to people and trying to build them up because, again, you're trying to want something from them. You're hoping that they'll, they'll reciprocate those things back to you. And then it's allowing people and it's pushing people, if you're deceiving somebody, to not be honesty, not, not, not to pursue honesty. And then he goes on, he says hypocrisy. It's an interesting word. It comes from the verb meaning to answer. A hypocrite was simply a person who answered. And then it was used as an actor for somebody that was narrating the actions going on because they would have different masks as they went across. And so what he's trying to say here is this word means a person who is acting out of a part and concealing their true motives. They're not being honest, being kind to people to their face, but not behind their back, hypocrisy. Doing one thing with one people and another thing with another people and then talking about it in between, hypocrisy. And he says there's no room for that. And he goes on and he says, envy. Envy must be cast aside. Envy is a desire to possess or belong, to possess what belongs to someone else. More than this, it's resentful discontentment. It's saying, hey, you know what? I'm not happy because I don't have these things, or I don't have the same thing that that person has. So it's envy of things, or maybe it's envy of positions. Well, well, my boss isn't as good as the, I could do a better job than them. And so I need to not submit to them. I need to try to usurp their authority and to try to have their position. Or maybe you have envy of influence. Why does someone have more influence than I do in this situation? Why does that person always get chosen for these things? Maybe that's how I felt when I got asked to preach and I was number five or ten, right? Maybe I had envious things there. Envy could also just be not celebrating others and admitting when things went really well. 
because somebody didn't celebrate you. As a pastor, that's one of the most difficult things about social media in some ways. Because we want to put things out there that are most important so people will look at us and say, man, they're doing a good job. But what if we use those things just to celebrate, man, look what God is doing in all these different faith families. Look how God is blessing in mighty ways. We get to celebrate this weekend. We have saw students that, that came to faith in Christ. We saw students that repented of sin. And it's not about whose church had more kids. It's not about whose name was lifted up because Jesus was the only name that was lifted up. You see, when we're envious, we're trying to rob God the glory that he deserves. But instead, we should be willing to die to those things and not to pursue envy, but to pursue gratefulness. He also says in there, he says slander. Literally, it means to speak against somebody. It suggests running others down verbally. It's speech that deliberately assaults the character of other persons. And so I don't know about you, but it's really difficult for me to go even a week in some ways without wanting or desiring to be slanderous towards somebody. Again, God is working in us. He's shaving off the rough parts of us, and hopefully we look more like him, but we're going to read these things and fall into it. So the question we have to ask is, are we guilty of these attributes? I mean, as we look at it, maybe today we need to apologize to somebody or a group of somebodies who we've been slanderous towards or has been slanderous towards us. We need to forgive them. Or we've been envious towards them, or we've been a hypocrite, or we've been deceitful in some ways. And the beauty of this is we need to remember that God knows these things already. But if you're a part of this new community, it doesn't mean that we can excuse those things. That's the problem for a lot of us is we do these things, and then we're like, oh, that's not that big of a deal, though. But we don't have that option here. Because Jesus shed his blood for us, we put away these things and we look like Jesus. Because Jesus has shed his blood for us, we don't pursue these things. We pursue Jesus. We pursue God's word. We pursue spiritual growth. And we need that reminder because all of us are fallen. All of us have fallen short. And we're not trying to pursue these things on our own. And so we need to be reminded that we've been bought. We don't pursue those things anymore. I try to tell my kids every single day. I pray for them in the car as I drop them off on the car rider line. Buddy, turn away from sin and trust Jesus today. And you know what? They need that reminder, but I need that reminder every single day. I'm not going to look like Jesus apart from the gospel. I'm not going to love one another apart from the gospel. And then we see the third and final spiritual truth from this text is this. We need to long for spiritual growth. Long for spiritual growth. Uh, this weekend, my, uh, my, great, my wife's great-grandmother, no, yes, my wife's grandmother, sorry, my wife's grandmother turned 98 today. 98 years old. And so they left out on Friday after school and, and they drove up to North Carolina to be with the family. And then they'll be driving back today after my wife makes a stop at Ikea in Charlotte. So I'm going to be a lot poorer by the end of today, most likely. Okay. Uh, but my wife went up there and, and all week long, I miss my family, like greatly. Like I love my kiddos. I love my wife. And when they're apart from me, I, I miss them. But I don't just miss them. I long to see them. Like there's something inside of me that longs to be with them. There's something inside of me that wants to, man, I want to FaceTime them all the time and I want to see them and I want to hear from them. And, and because, because I love them, because I care for them, I, I long for them. I want to be with them again. Now we long for many things, but the question in this text is, how often do we long for spiritual growth? Because look at the end of, uh, of, this, of our passage today in two, chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It says, like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk 
that by it you may grow up into your salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter ends this section with the, this exhortation in light of the gospel and God's word. And his command is to, to long for the spiritual growth in the same way that you would long, uh, that a newborn longs for, for milk. Now in other parts of the Bible, the, the Bible writers use the metaphor often of infants and milk. And it's talking about the immaturity. But that's not what this text is trying to communicate here. Peter is trying to say not about the maturity of the believers, but in the same way that Christians in exile are longing to be together and to study God's word, that's the way in which we should act every single day. If you've ever been around a newborn before, one of the things that even really well-behaved, non-colicky kids will say as a compliment to their kids is they just let us know when they're hungry. Now you laugh, but you know that's true, right? There's some kiddos, and then you're like, hey, man, they're great kids, but when they're hungry, they get hangry. Y'all know what hangry is. You should meet my wife when she doesn't have a meal. She gets hangry. My babes, we got to get you food now, okay? What we see in this text is in the same way that we long, that a child longs for milk or we long to eat at times, that this is the same way that we should be when we long for God's word, for spiritual growth. And others think that it's more than just even longing for God in Christ, that it's longing to be a part of this understanding of the gospel, living in light of the gospel. And none of this happens without God's word. And that's why over and over again in this text, he keeps coming back to the, the word of God, the word of God, the good news. Because he wants to remind us over and over again that this only comes to us because of what God has done for us. And we learn that clearest in God's word. You cannot be loved any more than you are right now if you are in Christ. You cannot be loved any more, any less. Because when God looks on us in our helpless estate, if we have repented and believed, all he sees is the righteousness of his son. We have given him our brokenness, our darkness, our sin, our unrighteousness. And Christ gives us his perfect righteousness. And when he does, <clears throat> when he gives us his righteousness, we are transformed by the gospel. And he cannot love you any more than he does right now. But if you want to grow spiritually, he, he asks us to, to long for that, to long for God's word. It's the way that babies grow. They, they get nourished. It's the same way that we grow spiritually. We get nourished. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is this true of us? Do you long to read God's word? Do you long to be in community with one another? Do you long to grow spiritually and to look more like Jesus today than you did last week? Do you, do you read and understand God's word, not just to check off a checkbox or to make sure you can, your Bible app will send it out to somebody that says, you completed today's reading? But do you read those things hoping that you grow and beg that God, that these truths that are in this text will be lodged deep inside of our hearts? Is God's word precious to you? Is it something that you actually take for granted because it just sits there all throughout the week or we pick it up when we go to church on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or is it something that we engage with on a regular basis? Several years ago, I had an opportunity to go to the Amazon rainforest and we went on a mission trip down there and um, it, was a, it was a wild trip. There, we first landed in there and we had this boat and we had all our supplies on the boat and we're, we were kind of coming up on this bank and they were like, all right, now it's time to get out and we're gonna push the boat to shore. And I was like, say what again? You know, and you're, you're, you're in the Amazon and you kind of feel like uh, piranhas like will nip at your feet and stuff, which is kind of wild. And then you're thinking, I hope they don't break the skin. I'm in trouble, right? And, um, and so in the Amazon rainforest, it was really cool. But one of, the, one of my favorite things 
about that trip, we got to go into a town where they had never heard of Jesus before. And we had copies of, of Spanish Bibles that we had brought down there. And I'll never forget being in this, this remote village. And, and this, this old man came up and he said, hey, what is that? And we said, uh, well, it's a copy of God's word and it's in Spanish. And he said, how long will you be here? And we said, well, we'll be here for a couple hours. Um, and so he said, okay. And so he traveled by boat like an, an hour and a half back to his house that he, was, he had come to visit somebody. So he went back to his house, and he, and he came back. And it was about three hours later, and this, this gentleman walks up, and he said, hey, uh, do you have a copy of, of that Bible, that God's Word is what he said? And I said, yeah, we still have a copy of God's Word. And, and, he, and he got it. He opened it up, and, and what he went back home to get was a pair of glasses so that he could read the Word of God in his heart language. He was willing to travel hours there and back just to be able to lay eyes on God's word. We have the access to God's word on our phones, in our houses. And I wonder at times, when do we say, God, we long for your word and we will do whatever it takes so that we can read it and apply it to our lives like this gentleman wanted to do in the middle of the Amazon rainbow. Brothers and sisters, if God has changed us, then it should incite inside something inside of us to long for those things. And I love how he ends here. Peter ends in Psalm 34, 80 says, is what he's quoting there. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, is what Psalm 34, 8 says in this passage. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You have tasted and seen what is written by Peter here when he's talking about the Lord. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Is it something that is true to you? Is it something that you tell others about? When you go to a new restaurant and you try something, you want other people to go because you've tasted something different. you tasted something great and you want others to be involved in that. Can we say those things about the Lord? And as we, we wrap up and we think about this, are we going to obey him? Do we read his word? Do we love him? Has he changed our affections for him? Has he changed our actions? Do we long to grow in our faith? And the wonderful thing about the gospel is that he actually saves us, and then he empowers us to be able to do these things. So as we read this text, it's not like we're going to try really hard to love one another today. No, no, no. We love Jesus more, understanding the gospel, and as a result, we start to love one another better. We don't say, hey, God, I'm just going to try really hard to read my Bible a couple times a week and to long for you more. No, we love Jesus more, and as we love him and, and spend time with him and we pray to him, and he changes our affection so that we long for those things. And so the, the command today from this text is not even try harder. It's trust in Jesus more. Trust in him with a greater sense of, God, these are the things that you have done for us because we've turned away from our sins and we've trusted you by faith. God's word is true and he keeps his promises. We sinned, but Jesus never did. And he fully paid for our sin. And I love even this morning in our faith family, they're preaching from Ephesians chapter 2. And I love that text because it's a reminder that not just that we were in darkness, but that we were darkness. Darkness is inside of us. And what the gospel does is it, it not only brings us into the light, it takes the darkness out of us. And Jesus gives us a new heart so that we, we long for these things. So it's a, it's a joy to be able to come and to celebrate and to sing and to talk about God's goodness. 
But we have to believe in what he has done for us. We need to repent of our sins and turn away from him and trust Jesus for what he has done for us. He's a good God who loves us and the opportunities to love one another, to look like Jesus, and to long for spiritual growth come because we serve a good God that wants to change us to look more like his son. So if you're a believer in here today, the questions we need to ask in light of this text is, do we need to apologize to someone we haven't loved well? If there's someone in this room or someone you need to send a text to after the service or call, we want to pursue those things. Are there actions in your life that show that you love Jesus? Or are there things that don't look like you love Jesus? What does that look like for you? And how, how are you going to love Jesus more and pray to him to say, God, these things are not true of me yet, but I know with your power and through your spirit that they can be true of my life, that I will put away these things. Do you need to look more like Jesus? Do you, do you long for Jesus? Do you long to read God's word? Do you long to pray to him? Do you long to spend time with him? Do you long to be with communities celebrating our king? And if you're an unbeliever today, I would say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see the Lord is good. It is such a joy to be able to read God's word and to see what he has done for us. And as believers in Christ, we get a chance to be a part of this community that is taking the gospel to the ends of the world and we get to do it together. All those things are a great joy. If God has saved us for what he has done for us, we should tell him, thank you. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna have a response song this morning, but let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. God, I'm so thankful for this text. I'm thankful for First Peter. I'm thankful even in my own heart this week of just that I need to be reminded of who I am in Christ, not because I'm really awesome, but because you're really awesome. That God, you chose me. God, you gave me grace and mercy. That you've made me a part of your family that you were actively not just, um, you didn't just save me and you're leaving me, but you're transforming me day by day. And God, as we sang earlier, God, we need you. We need you. And we beg, Lord, that you will help us to be a faith family that loves you well, that you will help us to be a faith family that longs for you, that we will be a faith family that looks more like Jesus today than we did last year. God, we know that none of this is possible without your gospel, that it is only because of your goodness and kindness towards us that we're able to even respond. And so, God, would you help us in these moments as we sing this song to repent where we need to repent, to celebrate where we need to celebrate, and ultimately, God, we pray that you will do this for your glory. God, you are so good. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.